We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. Uh, we started the Gospel of Mark last week, um, and we covered a lot last week. Um, I mentioned last week as I was preaching, usually when I do uh, an intro to a book, we take kind of the first verse or part of the first verse because there's so much background info. Uh, instead, with Mark, we jumped right into it because he jumps right into it. Um, he doesn't do character development and then get into the action. Instead, he sort of weaves it all together. He does it all at the same time. Now, we're not necessarily going to go at the pace we went last week through the entire book. We're not just going to run through Mark, um, because his brevity means that every sentence that he delivers to us um, has a lot uh, for us to think about. And so while we did a, a quick summary of the first few stories last week, we will be slowing down as we go through it, though not yet today. Today we're still going to go through quite a few stories. Um, and so last week we saw Mark doesn't give us details of the birth of Jesus, or he doesn't tell us any stories from Jesus' childhood. Instead, he describes the incarnation to us in an interesting way. Um, he introduces us to Jesus through John the Baptist, through Jesus' baptism, and through the temptation um, in, in order to place them into the much larger story of God. And so God made flesh um, is not described by the baby in the manger, uh, but as the fulfillment of prophecy the confirmed plan of the Trinity, and the process by which Satan will finally be defeated. And so Mark wants us to see that Jesus' work is effective to bring about salvation. Now the stories we looked at last week were mostly about confirming Jesus as the one who would come to save. Today we're going to look at three more stories, but they're focused on the authority of Jesus, who he is. They exist so that we understand that Jesus is not just the one who came and did the work, Right? He's not just the one who produced salvation, but that he is divine himself, which is hugely important. This is what sets Christian Islam, Judaism, they acknowledge Jesus' work, recognize it as the efforts of a great prophet or teacher. Cults that have grown up out of Christianity are Jesus as an important figure. Some will even call him divine. But their use of that word lessens his authority. Jesus exists as a work of God, not the authoritative creator and sustainer of the universe. And so Mark wants to make sure we do not make the same mistake. And so as he continues to introduce us to Jesus and his ministry, he is also going to continue to build our theological understanding of who the Messiah is. With that, let's get into it. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14 says this, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now some commentators attach these two um, verses to what we read last week, um, as it kind of completes John's uh, uh, work of preparing the way. Uh, but I really think that this section works better, or this, these verses work better with the section we're going to look at today. Uh, but either way, they do act as this transition point um, as we see uh, the story going from John to Jesus. Ministry primarily in that area going from John the Baptist to what Jesus is going to do. Now John had been sent uh, to prepare the way for the Messiah. But now the Messiah is here. And so John is done. Um, and he summarizes that himself in John 3.30, where he says, Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
Now, this is said by John in a really interesting situation where his followers are basically getting a little bit frustrated that that Jesus dude is taking all of his followers, right? So people who are, who are with him are all of a sudden going, we're going to follow the guy who you said, you know, his sandals, you were unfit to tie. Um, and so, but his, but his guys are kind of like, we don't like that. Um, we did all this work. We gathered this crowd, and now they're leaving. Um, and so they asked John, like, what are you going to do about this? What, how are you going to stop this? And John says in verse 27 of John 3, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And so John wants to make it clear that anything that we have, anything that we have done, our hat on, John doesn't have the ability to forgive sins. So any baptism of repentance that he does is as an agent of God. He's simply a conduit of God's power and grace. And so while his ministry began with calling people out to himself out in the, in, in the wilderness, the whole point is to hand this crowd off to the one who actually has the authority to cleanse and to save. And so Jesus showing up means that John's work is now done. And he is willing to decrease, not just because Jesus is the next thing. This is not kind of like a, whew, I can retire now. Um, it's because the authority of God has come. The thing that I have been waiting for, the thing I've been preparing for, it's here. And in verse 31 of John 3, John describes it this way. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. That is his description of who Jesus is. Now, when we look at Mark, Mark's transition from John to Jesus is a lot more, um, well, it's, it's immediate. John's decrease comes in the form of an arrest. So there isn't a whole conversation of increasing and decreasing. It's basically like, John's gone. He's been arrested. Um, and the scene quickly moves to now the increase of Jesus and his ministry. And it begins with Jesus making a declaration of what he has come to do. And Jesus says this, he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And so we see three aspects to this one sentence. Um, again, good job, Mark. Um, three big ideas he packs into this one declaration of Jesus. First thing he says is the time is fulfilled. What time is he referring to? Well, the simple answer is all time. Right, we said this last week, Jesus' life and ministry are not just a point in history, they are the point that all history um, resonates from. Paul makes a similar claim in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, when he says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's eternal purposes are set forth in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time. And so when Jesus says the time has come, he is declaring that this is the moment, the defining point in which the reality, or sorry, the history of the world uh, points to. In his second statement, he kind of explains why this is. Second statement he makes is the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the, 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 the phrase the kingdom of God is um, a big term. It's one that has caused quite a bit of debate among scholars and, um, well, just among people in general. Some define it very broadly. 
So basically anything good that happens, they say like, oh, it's, it's, it's kingdom building, kingdom work. Others offer a very tight definition where, where kingdom only has to do with those things that promote the work of the church. Some see the world as divided into two kingdoms and God kind of working differently within the two kingdoms. Um, we'll be discussing uh, sort of a definition of the kingdom as we go through Mark a lot more, especially as we get into the parables of the kingdom, which is one of my favorite sections. Look, look forward to it because I am. But for now, I just want to highlight that, that what Mark wants to, us to make sure we hold on to here is that the definition of the kingdom begins with the king. And so when Jesus says that the king and he's not declaring that a nation or an army is about to rise. He's talking about the one who is the authoritative head of the kingdom is here. He has come. Jesus being here means that everything is going to change from this point forward as everything should now be understood in relation to him. What this means is that how we define the kingdom should come from who we know him to be. Now I'd say this is an important caveat for us because the world that Jesus came into was looking for a savior. They were, they were, they were ready for a Messiah. Hope for the one who would come. Their hopes were very different. The religious were looking for someone who would reestablish the, the Jewish ceremonial system and bring devoutness back. Some ex- expected sort of a rhetorical politician who would kind of unify the whole world. Many of them wanted a military leader who would overthrow Roman rule and take Jerusalem back for the Jewish people. So they had a kingdom in mind. They knew what they wanted. And they measured Jesus by their expectation of the kingdom. Now, I would say we can easily fall into the same thing, even on this side of the gospel. The way that we tend to do it is we take a teaching of Jesus, we, we take part of his ministry, and we use it to justify the kingdom or the perspective that we already have. There's a lot of people who quote Jesus and tell us to act like Jesus while presenting a Jesus that merely fits their idea of the kingdom. And so we get political Jesus and social gospel Jesus and megachurch Jesus and Sunday suit Jesus. Right? All of these ideas of Jesus arise from connecting Jesus to an already established idea of what the kingdom should look like. But when you start with the king and you engage him to understand what the life looks like, it automatically becomes a more robust and nuanced it actually becomes somewhat more complicated than a lot of us are comfortable with. Because Jesus heals, but he doesn't heal everyone. He teaches, and he says some stuff that we don't agree with. He says that he has come to both bring peace and divide with a sword. All of this to say Jesus is not easily or narrowly defined. And we need to make sure that we're coming to him and who he truly is to figure out what it means that he builds his kingdom. And that's really what we're going to do as we continue to go through Mark. So be ready to be a little uncomfortable here and there. But he starts with a clear message. Again, he's going to go a lot of different directions. He starts with a very specific message. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I've always found this very interesting, and you may not, but that's okay. I have the microphone. Um, 
At the point at which Jesus is challenging them to believe in the gospel, he has not yet been dead or buried or resurrected. Right? Last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 15. We said that's the definition that we have of the gospel. This is the event. These are the facts. That is what we are meant to believe and put our hope and our trust in. And so the weird thing is, if these things hadn't happened yet, how could he tell the people to believe in the gospel? What is it that they're supposed to believe in? Anybody got an answer? No. There's two parts to the answer. I say the first thing is this, that that while the king has not yet shown how he will redeem, the fact that he is here, that the kingdom is at hand, is the good news itself. Right? Something new is here. Something has been inaugurated. It it will be completed in his life and work. And so in the redemptive timeline of sort of creation, fall, uh, redemption initiated, redemption accomplished, and restoration, it's kind of like a flyby of the whole Bible, um, the life of Jesus sort of stands out. Right? We're past the, the initiation of redemption that started with Abraham and makes up the Old Testament. And we're waiting for the redemption accomplished, which happens at the cross. And so the life of Jesus, the the content of the gospel that we are going through, is this short time period where the king of creation himself is present. Which is really, really good news. It's why the angels fill the sky and declare that he is here. Because it shows that the one who has authority to redeem cares enough to be present with his people. And so Jesus' presence itself is good news. And this will culminate with all what his life accomplishes. Now the second part of the answer, um, how can the people believe in the gospel if the events of the cross and grave are yet to come, is that the gospel refers to the whole plan of redemption and people can believe in what God has promised even as they wait for it. Right? God's Testament was enough to convict people of sin And to recognize that they must repent and turn back to him. God also makes it clear in the Old Testament that there is no direct way back to him unless he acts. He must provide the way. And so the law confronts us with our brokenness and gives hope by giving his people a means to be renewed and brought back to him. Now one of the things that that we've looked at Testament means the way that God gave them to to sort of return to him, these are temporary. Washings and sacrifices and rituals, these are shadows of the full and complete redemption to come. And so God's people were not saved through these things. All of these things prepare them for the Messiah, to place in them a hope for what is to come. They existed so that his people could believe in the gospel. The hope was always in the king that would rescue, not in the things that they were doing to get there. The by faith chapter in Hebrews um, 11 shows us that even those who came before Jesus were saved by their faith in him. Which again, thinking on a timeline does not make any sense. But this is, this is what it says. This is Hebrews 11.26. Speaking of Moses, it says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So Moses, who lived 1,500 years before Jesus, believed in the gospel and was saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That seems odd to us, like I said, because we think in a linear way. 
Also, we think of faith as, a, as certainty. Hope is something that comes by way of proof. But Hebrews 11 gives us a different definition. In verse 13, it says this about all those who came before. It says, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So what does it say about all of the Old Testament saints? It says, their faith is defined by two things. Knowing that they are strangers and exiles on earth, that they ultimately do not belong here and this is not their eternal home, And they greeted the things promised from afar. They know that there is something missing. And they trust God to provide what they have not yet experienced. Now I mention all this because I think it's a helpful corrective for us. God gives us plenty of reasons to trust in him. He offers us lots of proof in the world around us and and through history and, and in the Bible. But believing in the gospel is not primarily about weighing the evidence and coming to a conclusion. It's about trusting in the promises of God. It's about having hope rooted in who we know our Savior to be. It's acknowledging our sinful need and then giving the Savior authority in our lives. Sort of casting our lot with him. Trusting that whatever kingdom he brings in whatever way he chooses to bring it, It will be good, and it will be right. This is faith, being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. So as we move forward in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to have plenty to see. We're going to have lots of evidence given to us. But ultimately, the Gospel of Mark is not written down to convince us. Rather, it's there to introduce us to the king and his kingdom. That we may connect ourselves to the one who has all authority. And I always say this to people. God doesn't need you to give him authority. He has it. What he's doing for us is he's actually offering us an opportunity to get our lives connected and in line with things as they actually are. He's helping us to not sort of foolishly follow idols and try to find our hope in something else. He doesn't need this. We do. We need to recognize who he is. And so we'll spend the rest of the time today looking at those who are confronted by Jesus, who saw him for who he is. And we start with the calling of the first disciples. Mark 1, verse 16 says this. It says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called to them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now what I love about this is Jesus does not have much of a sales pitch. Right? I mean, like, he does not really spend a whole lot of time convincing them. Um, He finds some fishermen. He says, follow. And immediately it says they leave their nets and follow him. Right? Why? He hasn't shown them or proven anything yet. Why do they follow him? Well, they follow because his call is authoritative. 
In other words, Jesus is not only making an offer to them. He's not, again, giving them a sales pitch. Instead, what he says happens. The, the, the sort of authority of Jesus' voice is something that we're going to see again and again. But his calling of the, the first disciples here is one of the places where we see his, his word, his voice sort of commanding human action. His invitation here overcomes all obstacles and excuses and hesitance. Those who hear it respond and they follow. And they follow because he is worthy of following. Jesus describes what's happening here um, um, in, in John chapter 10 using the analogy of a shepherd and, and sheep. Verse, verse 4 of, of John 10 says, When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the, and the sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they not, do not know the voice of strangers. And so we see here the issue is not about the content of the message, but about the voice of the one who makes the call. The shepherd is followed by the sheep because he is their shepherd. Likewise, those who belong to Jesus hear his voice, they know it, and they follow him. This is true of all, all who belong to God. Right? Those who belong to him respond to the call of the gospel when they hear it. Not because they're debated into it, not because they're persuaded by the argument alone. No, they hear it, they know it, and they follow. Now, there's two really big sort of um, realities about the work of evangelism in this. Uh, The first is that our proclamation of the gospel does not need to be tricky or expertly presented. Which means you don't have to wait until you're good at it to do it. You don't have to wait until you know everything and have every answer figured out. It's the authority of Jesus that draws people to himself. And so we can simply declare the repentance of sins, encourage people to put their hope in the gospel and follow Jesus Christ. And we can stutter and we can stumble through it. They might ask questions that you're like, let me ask my pastor. It's okay. This is so encouraging. The authority of Jesus is far more powerful than your failures or weaknesses. He actually works through human weakness in order to display his strength. So actually, the worse you are at it, the better it might work. No, the fact that his voice and his truth has authority means we can trust him in spite of us. Now, the second reality that this reveals to us about evangelism is that we need to share it. Right? Why? Well, God is all-powerful and he can save in whatever way he wants to. The way that he has chosen to do it is through his people speaking the words of the gospel. People are saved by hearing about Jesus from those whom he has called to himself. And we see that displayed here. Right? When Jesus calls the disciples, he doesn't just call them to come and watch. Certainly that is an aspect of being a follower and a disciple is to watch the one you are following and to look at his life and hear his teaching. But the teaching is so that you can go and do. And so as Jesus calls his disciples here, he makes it clear that he is calling them to work. Right? He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. 
Now, he's using a metaphor here that they understand pretty well because they're fishermen. Um, uh, They would know exactly what he's talking about. Um, Their job is to catch fish, in case you didn't know what a fisherman does. Um, Now, the way that they did at this time period is they would throw their nets overboard, right? So if you've done this, you know, that's not what they're doing, right? They throw their nets in the water. They let their nets sit. The fish get in there. They pull the nets in. The nets are full of fish. Yay, going well. Um, You work hard, you catch fish. Sort of, right? I mean, it's not that easy. Sometimes you throw the nets out and you pull them in and you don't catch any fish. Right? You do the same exact thing. You put the same energy into it and you sometimes pull back and it's full. Sometimes you pull it in and there's almost nothing. So there's a lot of factors that are going to impact sort of the yield. Some things the fishermen can control, but a lot of things are happening under the water and are things that they basically have to just sort of Hope work out well. Jesus is calling them then into a similar ministry. Their part, and I would say our part, is to cast the nets, to share the gospel. Later in Mark, we see Jesus use the, um, the analogy of a sower, sowing seeds all over. Right? We are called to share the truth of the gospel broadly to anyone who will listen, even to those who won't knowing that it will effectively call those who God brings into the net. And so to be fishers of men is to keep doing the work, knowing that no fish are caught if the the net is never cast. Now what this does, this understanding of evangelism, what it does for us is it gives all glory for lives changed to God. He is the one who is going to do the work to bring anybody to himself. His authoritative call draws his people. Any and every person then who becomes a disciple follows because of the powerful work of God. What this does is it keeps us from becoming prideful. I've saved 27 people, right? Maybe you don't know those people. I have those people in my life um, who seem to take a lot of pride in how many people they have brought to Christ. But on the other side of it, it also helps us to not put too much honor in the person who has helped bring us to the faith. Not that we shouldn't be thankful for their efforts, but ultimately, they were simply a conduit that God used to do his work. But I think the biggest thing and the most important thing is this empowers us to all be evangelists because it takes the pressure and the excuses off our shoulders at the same time. In this, we are being invited by Jesus to be the means by which he calls people into his kingdom. Because it is his power working through us, we don't need to be impressive, just willing. And if we trust in the authoritative saving power of God, we will be people who are looking for every opportunity to share what has been given to us. And so as Jesus calls his first disciples here, Andrew, Simon Peter, James, and John, he's not just gathering together a crew. He's revealing his authority in in calling them, as he selects those that he's going to use to show his authority later on. Now, one more story of authority, one more person who who sees who Jesus truly is, um, as Jesus calls out a demon in verse 21. This is what it says. It says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, 
What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So Jesus and his new disciples travel three miles um, to the town of Capernaum, and uh, it's the Sabbath, so they do what um, Jewish people do on the Sabbath, and they go to the synagogue. Uh, They allow Jesus to teach there, Um, and as Jesus begins to teach, the people are amazed. It says that he teaches in a way that is different, right? Um, he, He doesn't teach as the scribes do. No, it says he taught them as one who had authority. So what does that mean, teaching with authority? Well, it means that that Jesus declared what was true, right? God is God, sin is sin, God has a way to deal with sin, and a way for his people to be in right relationship with him. The scribes tended to talk about um, a lot of of tertiary issues, lots of interesting things, um, lots of talk, but ultimately not what the people needed most, not the truth of the gospel. So here comes Jesus telling them that salvation is possible, that God loves them, He called them then to repent and to believe in the gospel. Basically, they they understood their lack, and he's saying, here's what you need. And so his message was authoritative because it was true and because it was effective. His message changes lives. But not only is his teaching filled with power, um, then Jesus turns and reveals his power as he heals a man with an unclean spirit. So there's this man who's possessed uh, by a demon, and he comes into the synagogue. He actually comes looking for Jesus. He comes into the synagogue, he finds Jesus, uh, he knows who Jesus is, and he comes speaking on behalf of the demons. Um, if, you, if you notice, he uses a plural, we, us. He has been the one who has sent to ask Jesus this question, and the question he asks is, have you come to destroy us? Right? We see a fear in this demon because he knows who Jesus is. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about demon possession next week, so come on back. Um, and actually, we are going to address a lot more of the sort of the questions around um, um, demon possession and of that fun stuff. Um, but what we see here is that the demonic spirits have had a certain amount of power. They've had an ability to sort of operate with some amount of freedom, and, and they see Jesus as a threat to this. Um, as a holy one of God, Jesus has the authority and the ability to destroy them all, and they know it. Um, they, they know that he can, in a moment, put a stop to everything um, that they are doing. And so while Jesus' ministry at this point um, has not really produced much of what would make people earthly uh, think power, um, the spiritual world is where, well aware of what he is capable of. And so Mark sort of uses this Um, insight of the spiritual world to help introduce Jesus, to show us his power kind of very early on in his ministry before it's really been seen um, in his work. Uh, He's going to kind of build that out a little bit. And it begins then with this first miraculous healing. Jesus' command to the demon is basically come out of him, and the spirit is then untethered from the host. The spirit leaves, Um, And this section ends by telling us that Jesus' uh, teaching combined with his miraculous work have people talking. Not surprising. 
Um, they recognize an authority in him because he is doing things that other people have not done. And so it tells us, at once fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And again, this isn't a surprise. Uh, a guy who teaches with authority and basically exercises demons um, uh, would become a hot topic. Um, that would become a popular thing. People would talk and all of a sudden Jesus' fame spread. Right? If, if a person had this sort of power, people would talk. But in the midst of all this, we get a detail, and it's a detail that a lot of people struggle with, um, and it's going to be a repeated theme in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus tells the demon to be quiet. Now, when he says be silent, he's not actually just saying, like, be silent in this moment because your voice annoys me. Um, um, Jesus often tells spirits, he heals, he even tells his own disciples, not to tell other people who he is. Right? Have you ever wondered about that? It's kind of like you came to display who you are, and now you're like, shh. Seems odd. Right? This is referred to as the messianic secret, um, and it shows up in all the Gospels, but in Mark it shows up more than in any of the others. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why people think Jesus might have done this and, and read quite a bit on it this week. Probably the most common pe- reason people give is that he wanted to limit the crowds and the fame. Uh, that basically, uh, if it spread too much, all of a sudden, uh, the Roman authorities would want to kill him. Um, the, the, Jewish le- well, the Jewish leaders did want to kill him. Uh, basically, though, there would just be too much stuff in his way to actually be able to fulfill uh, what he came to do. Um, and I think that there's some truth to that. At the same time, the crowds seem to still follow him. That only kind of worked. Um, so we can't really be sure. But my take is that Jesus, um, the reason why Jesus did this is because he wanted to sort of unfold the reality of the Messiah layer by layer. Um, that the problem with sort of uh, preemptively knowing that he is the Messiah, the Holy One of God, would uh, more readily have people coming to him with their expectations and basically bombarding him with all of these ideas of who he's supposed to be. Um, and so in some ways, not fully revealing his whole plan, but instead kind of doing it piece by piece, allows them to see him more um, uh, truly for who he is. Um, because, again, if they hear Messiah, they're going to expect primarily a, a healer, a military leader, a great rabbi. A lot of people did anyway. Um, um, and all of this obscures the truth of what Jesus has come to reveal. Uh, what Jesus came to do is Jesus came to authoritatively crush sin and redeem his people and to write the gospel story through his life, uh, a story um, that then could be shared by his people um, so that lives would be changed um, for eternity. Um, and we continue to tell this story today. And that's thing about this, I think, is, is, is what he's doing here, uh, what he is laying out for us is still the exact same message that we're, we're, we're speaking today. It still has the same power, authoritative power today that it did then. And so we tell this story every week, not only by preaching through the gospel, um, but every week when we come together, we celebrate repentance, we celebrate belief in the gospel through the sacrament of communion. And in the bread and the cup, what we're doing is we're declaring our sin, um, the gospel which saves us, and the authority of God to take sinful people and make them a part of his kingdom. So as you come to the table today, um, come to repent and believe in the gospel. And many of you are like, well, we're coming to the table because we repented and believed in the gospel. But, 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 but come to, to truly remember that. Remember who you are. Remember what Jesus has done to save you. Remember not to drop things in the middle of service. Um, So come to the table today to come and receive what Jesus gives. 
Um, to see him for who he is, not simply who you want him to be. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are and just for uh, the overwhelming grace that you have shown us. Uh, it's amazing to see uh, your hand in creation, your hand in sustaining us, your hand in redeeming us, your hand in carrying us through, your hand in comforting us. I mean, like, if we just really look at our lives, you are, are, you are every good thing that is a part of it. And yet somehow we find a way to live a good portion of our lives um, as if you don't even exist. Taking it on ourselves, believing that, 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 that we have a better idea of what is good and hopeful. And so we just pray that you would continue to break those things down. Continue to show us who you are in a way that overwhelms all of our preconceptions, uh, all of our idols. Remind us of your, your greatness uh, so that we can trust in you in the way that you have called us to. We thank you for all the ways in which you have revealed yourself so that we don't get stuck in our own way. Um, and we just thank you for Jesus most of all. It's in his name we pray. Amen.